Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we accelerate your brain with weird and wonderful science. I'm Ian Wolfe. In this episode, we continue with part two of my chat with engineer, transhumanist, Fusion Party candidate and my good friend, Brendan Clark, about the year in artificial intelligence and where it could lead. There was a researcher in the 70s and he coined the word singularity for a technological singularity is the term he coined. And that was his prediction that basically if you could get something that could modify itself and make itself more intelligent, and particularly if it was starting to approach human intelligence, then you could get a runaway technological intelligence that would just you know change. The, we can't imagine what happens after that point, whether it's humans in control of it or whether it's an individual entity or, you know, goes off on its own, whatever, things would be changing so quickly that you can't predict what happens after that, which is where the word singularity comes from, because he's comparing it to a physics singularity where you can't tell what happens in the singularity of a black hole because no information gets out. Once it's in, nothing comes out, or a mathematical singularity, which is, again, a point beyond which you don't know what's happening. But... From a technological standpoint, yes, it's where there's some sort of technological increase in intelligence, increasing intelligence, whether that's, you could count that as humans doing it as well. But of course, we don't understand intelligence very well in our brains. It's extremely complex. So I don't know whether we're going to be reproducing that in hardware or doing something completely different that isn't very much like our sort of intelligence. Yeah, well, that's the trick, right? <laughs> we don't know just yet. I mean, there's there's close approximations. Like the, the neurons that we got, the, the neurons we're simulating uh, are very, very basic, right? Yeah. They don't work like real neurons. Uh, and um, when some people, well, when, pe when people start generating neural networks, they basically add something that's like a little summed weight, right? So you've got a number of inputs, you've got an output, you've got some... Uh, function, which is a uh, activation function, and each of the inputs are multiplied by a weight. Yes, and that weight is where the learning happens, right? And so that's pretty much a simplistic neuron: two inputs, one output, and you've got like a, a multiplication and an add function. And yes. if that's greater than a certain activation function, it triggers, and if, if not, it doesn't. Since then, people have just you know, done some analysis of the way human neurons work, and they said, well, that's, that's not how our artificial neurons work. It's too simple. Yes. And then there was a question just recently, I think it was two years ago, three years ago, they went, how could we simulate a basic function of a human neuron or, or a neuron from an animal? And it's not exactly, but it's very close. They basically got real neurons and they got the artificial neurons with this new function. And they said it almost exactly matches the behavior of the real. Is that the neuromorphic uh, sort of? Not the neuromorphic chips. No, that's this is slightly again. different. <laughs> yeah. 
because there's there's a lot more complications happening inside a neuron than just weighted sum, yes. right? And so the way they managed to simulate a neuron was each neuron can be considered as a neural network itself, hmm. right? Like a mini computer inside, right? So it's more complicated. But they found out they can simulate the effects of the neuron hmm. with eight neurons, Ah, right? That's the minimum number, right? Yep. And then you can almost exactly simulate what's going inside. Uh, now, obviously, you can make it more complex, but yep. But eight is close enough. That's and, really and so, interesting. So mm. that matches up a little bit because what I'd read was that people were basically saying that human neurons, and therefore probably animal neurons to some degree, do some computation themselves. They're not just, as you say, mm. they're not doing the simple summing and weights and biases to do just simple changes in signals mm. that they're actually doing some sort of computation before they then apply that sort of thing and pass things on and so if you're able to get a group of neurons to act like a sing well a group of synthetic neurons to act more like together like a biological neuron that makes some sense yeah now again it's not a one-to-one but it's it's close enough. <laughs> close enough to make a big improvement. Yeah, exactly right. So, so you you you're factoring in some of that extra computation that yep. little neurons do, and you're making the model better. Because there's obviously a lot more complications going on with real neurons, right? The genes and, and things like that. Those those mm. triggers, but it seems to be a close approximation with the behaviour. And so they actually simulated this by actually getting. Oh, I can't remember if it was a rat. A rat cortical column or something like that and they put this in and they did a one-to-one mapping of this and they trained it with the same data and um, they got a very very close approximation to the real behavior in human neurons when you're given a general anesthetic there's a little tiny organelle in the neurons that flips its polarity from plus to minus right it just flips over and you're unconscious because there was suspicion that they were doing computation themselves. And I read a book oh, nearly 20 years ago now on the quantum brain. And they were showing that at the molecular level, there's some quantum chemistry going on. And that it would make sense for biology to take advantage of the quantum chemistry. Because that's mm. what life does. First it gets in the way and then it depends on it. <laughs> yeah. And so they showed that there are ways that neural networks in the brain could go a little bit faster if they were taking advantage of quantum chemistry. So they weren't saying the brain was a quantum computer, but they were saying that neural networks could take advantage of quantum chemistry to go faster. And it was kind of convincing at the time, but I haven't looked back into that. But again, that would be another level for machine learning to try and copy some of that from what happens in biology. Hmm. Yeah. So that, that was um, the argument, I suppose, why that was important is uh, I was having a bit of an argument with my friends at work about the complexity to simulate a human brain level in a, in a computer, right? Because, you know, we've got 80, what was it, 80 billion neurons, approximately 10,000 synapses so per, per neuron, right? And so if you want to do that, I think it's something like about 100 trillion or something like that, connections. That's in the realms of possibility to simulate with hardware. Yes. But it's very complicated, right? 
But then if you times this by another factor of eight, yes. right? And then, of course, the ridiculous power consumption, et cetera, right? Sure. Which is when you get neuromorphic chips and things like that, right, to have yes. low power. But I still think it's doable. It just means it's difficult, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> at the moment we've got a chip shortage. I know America's trying to start up their own chip manufacturing, if only for national security reasons, and I don't know what other countries are trying to do that. I don't think we are in Australia. No, we should be, but we're not. No, we're not. <laughs> and then there's, of course, if, the story. If it's, not, if it's not digging coal and gas out of the ground, we're not doing it. This is yeah. true. This is true. We're only going to space so we can mine the moon, is my understanding in Australia. <laughs> That's literally one of the goals of the Australian Space Agency. They have funded a project for Australian mining companies to send a rover to the moon to essay what can be mined. It's a little sad, really. <laughs> but that's all the space agency does here. It's got to be very commercial or they're not interested, generally, unless yeah. it's international partnership. It was in the news that OpenAI is doing deals with these companies to make these neuromorphic chips that mm. they haven't run models on before, so it's a little bit speculative how well they'll run. And, of course, part of the problem is the companies are largely owned by Sam Altman, the CEO, which is a conflict of interest, along with the other hardware companies that they're looking at, which are also owned by Sam Altman. And these may be part of the reason why he was sacked, because there's, you're not so, it's illegal for these some of these uh, conflicts of interest when you've got a non-profit foundation. But the other thing is, of course, that since cars and everything... TVs, monitors, phones, everything has a CPU. I think that's the other part of why there's shortages is because we're putting them in literally everything and we're putting them in more things than we ever used to. Every month they're coming up with new ways to put CPUs and things that didn't used to have CPUs. Hmm. And that's probably part of the shortage as well. But with DeepMind uh, making <laughs> make these, uh, these new advances in discovering these new materials which is just done recently. I think they said over 200,000 new materials. Quite they've done simulations. Isn't that they're using machine learning in a, in a similar way that they did with medicine, where um, as it turned out, the with poisons, yeah. <laughs> yeah. where they can churn through all the physical possibilities in their simulator and then narrow in on the ones that do what they want and then test them out to see which ones really work because the simulations aren't always perfect. Correct. Yeah, they're doing exactly the same things with material science now. Really um, speeding So maybe up. they were, yeah, lots and lots, like more, kind of, so between two or 300,000 different yeah. materials. Yeah. Now, they, they're supposed to be stable materials, which is the most important part. Because, of course, they have to be tested, right? Yes. Yeah. But some of those things could come out with new battery technology, new uh, material science for developing chips, which could also then, make more efficiencies for creating new ships, right? And we get our singularity, right? <laughs> well, see, the other thing I wanted to mention there is that in addition to all the compute stuff that Meta's getting, they're also buying humanoid robots for their factories. Yes. Which is a bit of a hint that they want to sack all their workers. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, that's the double-edged sort of technology, right? So in one term, it's good, and another term, it's bad. We get it to the manner. <laughs> yeah. Well, what I'm just going to say briefly there is like, yeah, yeah, obviously, if you owned the robot that did your work, then you'd still get the income, right? Or mm. one of the things that was suggested way back in the 80s, I think, by Robert Anton Wilson, 
he had a system he called Rising Income Through Cybernetic Homeostasis, R-I-C-H. And for a rich society, what he suggested was that you have a class of engineers that go in and try to automate every job. They go in and learn the job, work out how best to automate it. But the law would be that for any employer to automate people out of work, especially en masse, but at all, that because they're making more money by not having the employees there, because the automation can go 24-7 and doesn't need bathrooms and doesn't need rest breaks and all these things, that the extra money, some of the extra money they would make, would go to paying the workers a lifetime income so that they wouldn't lose out. So instead of you losing your job and being destitute, being poor until you die, that instead you'd earn at least as much as you did while you were working and your employer earns more and it's win-win, but it's legally mandated so that the employer actually does it. And if that was the case, then the engineers would be heroes rather than villains because at the moment, people aren't happy at losing their job to automation and haven't been for a long time. So because they become poor and they might not even ever get another job because a lot of employers will only employ people who already have a job instead of employing people who are looking for work, who are out of a job. And so as a result, instead of people hating that their job's been automated, if you're going to get paid the same but not have to do the job, you could be delighted at that. And the engineer would be the hero. And he, the suggestion was that those people could actually move from job to job, automating as they went the jobs that are easily automated and therefore likely to be boring. Except, of course, we've discovered that not all the easily automatable jobs are that necessarily the boring ones or the, the really menial ones. And a lot of people are very unhappy, but part of it is that they're not getting paid anymore. So if you're an artist or if you're a factory worker, or an office worker, or a manager, and you lose your job, then if you were paid, and paid at the same level, I don't think you'd be as angry about losing your job, especially if it was guaranteed no. income for the rest of your life. Hmm. And I think and that's, that's about restructuring society. That's mm. about restructuring society, right? Or ex society expectations, right? We don't have a society that's friendly to that idea. At the moment, we have certain political parties in Australia who are openly hostile uh, to the idea of anyone that's unemployed. Yes. All right. Despite the fact that they cause the unemployment as a deliberate government policy to control Absolutely. inflation. Yeah. So oh, I'll try it back. I'm going to name them anyway. So the Liberal Party. <laughs> but the Labor so, Party does it too. They're right now they do. deliberately yeah, making they do. people unemployed to lower inflation. Yeah, that's, right. that's the Reserve Bank, which is an arm of the government, even if it's not under direct government control. That's mm. Their policy is to raise interest rates in order to cause unemployment to go up because they imagine that inflation will go down if employment goes up, even though they can't prove it and it so far has not worked at all. No, well, that's right. The issue is how do we give society the idea that people are not defined by the jobs that they do? Oh, that's right? a big people, one. I know, I know. <laughs> right. But 
But really, it's the first question people ask you, isn't it? So if you've met someone for the first time, certainly in Mm. Australia, the first question most people will ask you after hello and your name is what do you do? It's a pretty safe question though, right? So, I mean, what else are you going to ask someone, right? Oh, there's um, lots of things you could ask them about their interests or, or, or other things. But we ask them, what is your job? What do you do? And if someone tells you a hobby, they immediately say, no, no, that, that's your, you know, that's your avocation. But what's your vocation? What's your job? Because that's how they want to instantly pigeonhole you. And it matters to them that you've got a job and what your job is. So it's part of the well, demonization so- of the unemployed, of course. Yeah, well, people are defined by their employment, right? Mm. Uh, for good or evil, right? But I think that's people are just conditioned. Well, in my opinion, people are conditioned to ask that question because it's perceived to be rude to ask about anything else when you don't know someone, right? It's a pretty safe question. It's a pretty personal right? question. Yeah. How do you make money? is kind of a personal question, isn't it? How much are you worth is kind of what they're also asking. What class do you belong to? Are you a lowly, are you a garbage collector? Are you an office worker? Are you a factory worker? Are you a CEO? Are you a millionaire who doesn't have to work? In which case we won't judge you because you've got lots of money. It seems like it's really a personal question about your value. Yeah. Oh, I never thought about that way. Sorry. <laughs> I always thought it was a safe question to ask, right? Uh, what people do, right? Because it's like you go to work generally, you know, eight hours a day. It defines you. And it's relatively, probably a safe question to ask without insulting people, right? Mm. You wouldn't ask them what their religion is off the bat for a complete stranger or their political allegiances and things like that. They're pretty taboo topics to talk about, right? Mm. Um but, but I get your point. It is it is something we need to restructure society away because at the end of the day, having a job or not having a job shouldn't define your worth as a human being, which is even more important now that we're automating people, right? Because if people get automated out of their jobs, then lots of people won't have a job. That's right. right? Increasing uh, numbers of people won't have jobs, yeah. Correct. And so that's been an argument of mine for a while. People think that this, because we've been talking about, you know, transhumanism and singularity for a while. People think, oh, it's okay. It's like the industrial revolution or the the printing press or whatever it is. We we replaced all these jobs, but we always created new ones. But this this era right now is, is different because we have the rate of change is way too fast. Right. And so, yes, you are creating new jobs, but you are replacing more jobs than you're creating. Right. And they're not the same people who can do the new jobs. No, 100%. 100%. Right. Now, this could be a good thing. Uh, If we automate things, we can basically elevate society. We can get some of the dangerous jobs and the the unpalatable jobs and get them uh, automation. And we can give jobs to other people, which is uh, much better jobs that can be not so dangerous and not so demeaning and all this stuff, right? So we can do that. The the question is, why do we want to do that, right? Now, we need to structure society that we want to do that because that's the right thing to do, not that there's a new group of people to exploit, right, which seems to be what a lot of corporations do. And so if we we can do that for everybody, we can can, uh, uh, lift people up, educate them, then people will do what they want to do 
and that will help society. Just going to say, isn't that part of the problem as well? Is not simply that it's horrible for the people that are left impoverished, but also that the whole system breaks down because those wealthy people who are sacking everybody and replacing with automation, they're running a business that needs customers and customers need to have an income. And if most people don't have a job, if more and more people don't have a job, then the number of customers for those businesses goes down and down and down until they can't be sustainable. So if the businesses can't run, then the people owning the capital, the the wealthy people running the businesses can't run the businesses so they'll lose a job as well. And the whole system can all sort of collapse if you yeah. just automate absolutely everything with no provision for what happens to the people who are unemployed. But also, economically, it doesn't make sense, not just that you don't have customers for the businesses and the services, but in the real world, outside of sort of imaginary, oh, you know, it's more mouths to feed, stop, stop feeding them, that when you give people, poor people, if you give people money to spend, they immediately spend it on the things they need, which means the money goes to the businesses and the people who do have jobs. So they're supporting the economy by staying alive rather than being allowed to starve to death. It just seems that both the right thing to do is not just the morally right thing to do, happens to also be the economically right thing to do. Yeah, but the problem is our society's been corrupted by certain large corporations who have far too much power, and, and they've got exactly that problem. They basically price themselves out of the market, yep. right? The customers can't afford their products. So the only way to keep their profits high is to basically gobble up other corporations to keep that money train coming through, Right. So they just get bigger and bigger and just suck up more and more resources. And then they get Um, the government as a client because they can't get the public as a client anymore. Yeah. So you've got companies that only have the government as a customer, which means, you know, they don't care if we're all impoverished because the government's still there. Yeah. Well, you've got companies in the United States where their only reason they are still doing business at the moment Mm-hmm. is because their workers are on food stamps because yep. they can't afford to work there. Because minimum the wage is too low. Exactly. Well, corporations don't pay them enough, so the people are literally starving unless the government gives them social security so mm. they can feed themselves. Yes. We need to, we need to stop that, right? Because that's, that's well, that's, that's the idea for regulation, right? For government intervention, right? So one of the things to restructure society is that we need government intervention and government planning for this new type of society, which is why one of the reasons I joined the Science Party and the Fusion Party, we want to give the government that job and the outlook to plan for that. So governments need to define a set of rules. Like I know there's an argument about capitalism and everything else, right, but at the end of the day, corporations need a set of defined values that they need to operate in. And the government controls that. So as much as we like to harp on about how evil corporations are, corporations aren't evil because the government lets them be. Yeah. The government sets the rules. So if you want to have the free market, that's fine, but you still need a set of rules to play in. Yes. Right? And and so the government needs to take a more active role in that to, to point corporations into a particular 
view of what the country needs to look like, then the corporations will go fill those gaps. Yeah. Right. But if you don't plan that and you just say, well, I'll just go ahead and do whatever you want, uh, corporations will, uh, especially when they're badly, well, got bad motives such as infinite money, right? At the at the expense of all else, right? And so when we're going to a new society of automation, we need to basically now define corporations that are doing maximum good for society. They will still make money, right? Which is fine, but they will make money responsibly and it won't be unfair for the corporations because all players will have the same set of rules to operate with. Yes. Right? And so you still get the free market for those people who like that, but you get some control and some guidance, assuming that your government is actually interested in the greater good and moving society forward and society will thrive. Otherwise, we get the the horrible dystopia that we see in all the science fiction movies with global corporations running riot, almost like another arm of government. That's kind of where we are. That was part two of my discussion about artificial intelligence with Brendan Clark. You can now buy Diffusion Science Radio merch from diffusionscience.etsy.com. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please subscribe to the Diffusion Science Radio channel on youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8 C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2 MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3 MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in northeast Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos, and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labeled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf or join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. 
in the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.